Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. From a gear regime perspective, we're what we call inflation right now. We're going to transition to deflation in a few months. It's very likely that the pace of deceleration of growth is likely to pick up to the downside and open up a pocket of an air pocket to the downside with respect to risk assets, you know, S&P 500, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by the founder of 42 Macro, Mr. Darius Dale. Darius? Welcome back to the show. What's up, brother? How you doing? Doing very well, man. I'm doing very well. Um, For listeners who don't know, this is actually Darius and my uh, second bite at the apple here. We actually made it halfway through an episode yesterday, and then we had some technical difficulties. So the bar is extra high for us today, Darius, but I I think we can get there. What do you think? Practice makes perfect, my friend. And oh, by the way, before we get going, you guys have been absolutely killing it with the content this year, man. So keep it up. Really proud of what you're building. I appreciate it, man. Thanks very much. Uh, your check's in the mail. Don't worry for the, for the endorsement. Uh, <laughs> I got you on that. Um, all right, but we've got a lot of really interesting stuff I want to get through today. So uh, kind of before we get into it, walk us through just your kind of 10,000 foot view of the macro now. Like what are some of the most important things that you're paying attention to? Yeah, so let's let's start with like what actually matters in macro because there's a lot of stuff going on right now. But there's only sort of a few real core drivers of dispersion within and across asset markets. There's growth. And particularly the rate of change of growth, the direction of travel, how fast is it moving? Um, that's right now we're kind of mired in a cyclical slowdown from a growth perspective. That cyclical, the pace of deceleration is likely to, to accelerate in the back half of the year and into the part of early part of next year. Uh, we will go below trend from a growth perspective. At least it's very likely, according to our forecasts, that we're going to go below trend from a growth perspective. And at that point in time, depending on what adverse exogenous shocks that might happen, uh, we might either go into recession or not. It's impossible to forecast the recession. Obviously, it's a material deviation from the trend. So, uh, But we'll see where we, where we are kind of in the middle of next year on that front. Uh, with respect to inflation, uh, obviously, inflation is the number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten story on, on any sort of uh, financial yeah. media uh, headline. It's obviously the number one issue in the country from a polling perspective. Um, it's obviously the number one issue the Fed is focused on with respect to pulling, uh, reining in liquidity. And it's not just the Fed, by the way. Ninety-five percent of global central banks are currently tightening. Got that stat from uh, from from uh, from actually Jack's uh, podcast as well yesterday. Uh, anyway, so uh, my key takeaway on inflation is that we continue to build momentum uh, to the upside in most inflation metrics, particularly where it matters most, median CPI, sticky CPI, core PCE, you know, those are the kinds of metrics that'll get the Fed actively engaged and will keep them actively engaged in, in withdrawing liquidity from financial markets and the economy over the medium term. Um, with respect to policy, so it's growth, inflation, and policy are sort of the core drivers from a macro risk management perspective. You gotta get those things right if you wanna get your asset allocation and ultimately your uh, portfolio construction right. But then going back to, uh, with respect to policy, you know, it's our view that the Fed is going to tighten until they break something. And the reason I say that is that the probability the Fed breaks something is actually as high as it's ever been. Um, if you think about sort of where the starting point is with respect to this current policy tightening cycle, you know, the unemployment rate at 3.6% is the lowest it's ever been at the onset of a tightening cycle. You go back to the only two sort of um, uh, soft, soft landings that they talk about, quote unquote, soft landings. You go back to 1994 and then 1984. The, the unemployment rate was six, north of 6.5% in 1994 in that soft landing, and it was north of 10% uh, in 1984 in that soft landing. So the key takeaway is that, look, you can soft land the economy if there is still organic growth potential, i.e. workers to be hired into the economy so that you can continue to grow. 
you're not going to soft land if we've hired everyone. And oh, by the way, you know, sort of job openings relative to total amount of unemployed workers is almost two, you know, two X. Um, so, you know, it's very, t it's very clear that we were running out of organic growth potential. And so you really need to rely on financial leverage to grow. And obviously the cost of capital continues to rise for consumers and businesses at a pretty alarming rate. So those key takeaway, those key drivers of macro are all pointing you in the negative direction from a grid regime perspective. And I'll explain the grids later in the interview. From a grid regime perspective, we're what we call inflation right now. Inflation is where growth decelerates and inflation is accelerating. That tends to have uh, adverse impacts on, on, on risk assets. Um, that tends to be sort of positive for things like the dollar and gold, you know, commodity prices, et cetera. We're going to transition to deflation in a few months. And that's where growth's decelerating and inflation's accelerating. So we got inflation peaking over the near term and starting to decelerate. But most importantly in that process, particularly in the kind of earlier part of that transition process, it's very likely that the pace of deceleration of growth is likely to pick up to the downside and open up a pocket of an air pocket to the downside with respect to risk assets, you know, S&P 500, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. I want to just uh, double click on this topic of growth in general. Like first, just for the listeners, could you, when you're talking about growth, like what are some of the specific economic indicators that you're looking at? And then second part of that question is how does that tend to translate into asset prices, right? Because obviously we've been in a low growth environment for a little while now, but asset prices have done fairly well. So when you, how do you kind of think about the interplay there? In terms of the indicators that we look at growth, from a growth perspective, you know, obviously GDP is the main sort of uh, economic statistic that we're all kind of agreed to use as a measure of growth, as a measure mm -hmm. of output, the broadest measure of output. But when you think about it from a market standpoint, GDP is such a lagging indicator, not just with respect to itself, with respect, with respect to the broader market cycle, but it also comes out on a material lag just in terms of the cadence of economic reporting. And so what we tend to focus on at 42 Macro are composite leading index time series, you know, the things that sort of lead the GDP cycle, typically uh, by one to two quarters in terms of the inflections. And so the markets really care about the rate of change. And so if you can get out ahead of those inflection points, that tends to be where the vast majority of the money is made uh, in, in, in and across capital markets. And so, you know, you go back and think about, okay, we've been in this sort of slow growth environment, and that's been the case for, for quite some time now. You know, you go back to kind of really that, that period really ushered in post the uh, global financial crisis, but you can make the case that really since the early part of the 2000s, and there's a myriad of reasons if you want to unpack those, uh, why we've been sort of secularly slowing from a growth perspective, demographics, globalization, you know, sort of rising debt, all those kinds of, you know, things that everyone's well aware of. Um, so from that perspective, we're in a slow growth environment, but the reality is even within a slow growth environment, you still have cyclical accelerations and cyclical decelerations in growth. And so, you know, you talk about, you know, where most of the positive response, the positive returns have come from in asset markets, they've all come in these sort of cyclical uh, appreciations. You know, when, you know, going back to that grid regime process that we highlighted that, you know, this is sort of core to our process, our racker risk management framework at 42 Macro, we call it the grid regime cycle. Um, G stands for Goldilocks. That's where growth's accelerating. The three-month impulse in growth is positive. The three-month mm. impulse in inflation is negative. Um, that tends to be extremely positive for asset market returns. You know, annualized expected return for, let's say, the S&P 500 in that regime is somewhere around 25 to 30%. You know, then you transition to reflation. Uh, that's the R on the grid. Uh, that's where both growth and inflation impulses are positive. You know, annualized expected return of the S&P is still north of 20%. In that environment, this is the regime where you tend to see the biggest drawdowns in bonds, biggest increases in bond yields, and then you transition to inflation and deflation. Those have negative expected values for the market, particularly when growth's uh, uh, sort of slowing at a very fast pace. You know, one stat I like to throw out in terms of the kind of the current racket risk management setup, 
you know, we're currently in inflation, so that means growth slowing and inflation's accelerating still. We'll transition to deflation, but really isolating the growth component of that back test. Right now, we're in what we call from a quantitative perspective, a zero sigma delta deceleration. All that really means is that this pace of deceleration is a zero sigma from a z-score perspective relative to its trailing three-year sample. Three sample. That mm -hmm. tends to actually have a positive expected value for the S&P 500. That's a plus 5% on an annualized basis. When you transition to a minus one sigma delta, that, trend, that, that expected value, that positive expected value transitions to a minus 6%. And then when you go to a minus two sigma delta pace of deceleration, which is what our models have forecasted for much of the back half of 2022, you that that S and P five hundred expected value goes all the drops all the way down to minus thirty percent. So again, it's about kind of the, the pace of deceleration, the direction of travel, and ultimately the asset market response to, to all these dynamics. One one of my favorite things about the way you structure your research, uh, your research note is you've got your kind of your your uh, long term, right? Your six to twelve months, your midterm, and then your short term in general. Mm -hmm. So maybe like starting with the long term, let's say your your six to twelve month outlook, which maybe would line up with kind of your cyclical outlook, right? Like how are you kind of thinking about things? What are some of the indicators you're paying attention to? Yeah, great question, Mike. So let me uh, take a quick step back and understand and and explain why we parse the sort of world uh, in those in those three different durations. When you talk about the long term, and for our from our perspective, long term is six to twelve months. Anything beyond that is really irrelevant from a risk management standpoint. And again, what we're trying to do is help investors sort of take advantage of the changes in the macro cycles to ultimately kind of kind of generate positive outcomes in their in their portfolios. And so, the kinds of investors that I talk to that care about the what quote unquote long term, the six to twelve months, these are sort of your typical mutual fund investors long only portfolio managers who really care about you know sector and stuff sector dispersion industry dispersion you know within the equity and credit markets the medium term this will be called three to six months these are your typical hedge fund investors you know they're trying to sort of nail quarters go you know, quarter to quarter get earnings right things of that nature in the equity and credit markets so that's kind of their focus um, a lot of them are tasked with generating positive absolute returns you know certainly on a quarterly basis but you know a lot of chops actually will get mad if you're not doing that on a monthly basis as well and then lastly there's a sort of short-term trading a lot of retail activity tends to be focused on the kind of one to three week duration um, a lot of sort of high frequency swing traders as well uh, those types of folks uh, tend to really congregate in that in that in that framework so you know, we try to uh, communicate the output of our research across those three different durations, really focusing and isolating on the variables that really matter most to those different pockets of investors. So starting with the long term, it's our belief that, you know, 12 months from now, at least according to our models, inflation is going to be a lot lower, growth is going to be a lot lower, the Fed will be a lot tighter, and the confluence of those three, those three sort of factors will take asset, likely have taken asset markets a lot lower from where they are today. From a risk asset perspective, you're probably going to see bonds higher, um, potentially substantially higher, uh, though I'm not, it's, it, the jury's still out on that in terms of the imp ultimate impact of quantitative tightening in this particular cycle. Uh, from a medium-term perspective, again, I, I think the core, core call, the core tenet of one of our uh, main views at 42 Macro is that, hey, look, growth's fine. Growth's been fine for now. In fact, growth is accelerated. We are currently in what we call mm -hmm. a reflation from a grid regime perspective. That means the positive, we have a positive impulse in growth, a positive impulse inflation. And so from the Fed's perspective, they're looking around and seeing an economy that's you know, doing quite well. Labor market's really tight. You, know, you have PMIs continuing to improve, generally speaking. You, know, you obviously have you know, retail sales, industrial production. The impulses are very strong there. Um, so you, you look around and you see an economy that's quite strong. Well, that transition from going to quite strong now, kind of in mid to late Q2, to something that looks, 
you know, quite weak, certainly in differential terms, in terms of the deceleration, you know, by kind of late Q3, early Q4, in our opinion, that that's where you're going to see a lot of risk, uh, market risk kind of, uh, kind of um, unfold across financial markets. And so that's sort of what we were helping investors sort of prepare for is, hey, look, things are fine now. The market is able to digest, you know, the sort of the shift higher in policy rate expectations. The market's able to digest the pull forward of quantitative tightening right now because the growth dynamic is fine. That's the, that's the number one principal component in most asset class, you know, back tests is the growth factor. You know, but the policy factor is going to only get worse at the same time. The growth factor is going to go from being somewhat supportive to potentially very unsupportive kind of, you know, three to six months from now, really six months from now by the time we get into kind of early part of Q4. So that, in our opinion, is kind of the key risk management uh, takeaway that everyone needs to be focused on. To what uh, degree does the policy factor depend on the growth factor, i.e., right, you've got politicians in the form of the Fed looking at market conditions like growth and saying, we think roughly, you know, uh, credit markets, stock market, they can support this amount of tightening. But if that growth were to flip and asset markets were to stumble, do you think the policy, could you see the policy factor changing and saying, oop, you know, ultimately we'd love rates to be here, but, uh, you know, markets can't support it and they kind of reverse. Like, you know what I mean? What's the interplay between that, that kind of growth uh, and, um, and policy factor? No, great question, Michael. So when inflation's behaving, the growth is the only factor that matters. Growth right. In, growth yeah. in financial conditions, right? You know, so the Fed, let's take a step back. The Fed has, you know, technically speaking, two sort of mandates, right? It's maximum and stable, or maximum employment and stable prices. Well, those mandates have been sort of evolved in, in, in the pandemic era, uh, particularly going back to the fall of 2022, maximum and inclusive employment, which in that and inclusive, by the way, is the reason we're here from, a, from a, you know, Fed being behind the curve perspective. And then you have, um, obviously, the average inflation target. There's a third leg of that stool that's been implicit really since the global financial crisis, which is, you know, sort of, you know, financial market stability. You know, whether the Fed is, uh, says it or not, they really care about the functioning of the repo market, you know, the ability for companies and, and businesses and or sorry, for consumers and businesses to, to refinance existing debt obligations and things of that nature. So, you know, whenever you start to see things really breaking in the financial markets or in the economy, at least historically, the Fed has been quick to pivot back to being dovish, you know, from whatever hawkish, you know, policy they try to, the hawkish objectives they try to set out. This time is different. And the reason I say this time is different is because most people watching this podcast, I would imagine at least 95% of people watch this podcast, weren't trading stocks or tra trading markets at all, or, you know, certainly crypto didn't exist, you know, back at the last time we had a real true inflation scare. This goes all the way back to the 1970s and early 80s. And so when, the, when inflation is, is very unwell behaved, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better word, you know, as it is now, currently you got 8.5% headline CPI, core PCs at 4, 5.4%. Those numbers are kind of important. What I think the numbers that are more important from uh, an inflation perspective is really the impulse in inflation. Because right now, as I mentioned at the onset of the interview, inflation continues to build momentum to the upside through the March, through the April, March data, through the most recent data points, median CPI, three month. Uh, the three-month annualized pace of growth or inflation rate there is, uh, median, by the way, median CPI is everything in the basket. You just take the median inflation rate of it. That's at 6.4%. That's an all-time high. Sticky CPI at 6.6% on a three-month SAR basis. That's the fastest pace we've seen since August of 1990. And so, you know, when you look at it, and Core PC, even the three-month SAR on Core PC is 5, 5.6%. So these are three, 400 basis points higher than the Fed's inflation target. And so as long as we continue to have that massive spread between where inflation's momentum is and where the Fed's ultimate objective is, 
the Fed can't do anything in response to a cyclical slowdown in the economy. The really the Fed, the only thing that's going to allow the Fed to truly pivot dovishly are two or twofold. One, inflation gets under control, which is very unlikely to do you know, over the next several quarters. Or two, they really do break something in financial markets, like the S and P's down 30 percent. You know, the repo market's blown up. The bond, you know, ten-year tips yield or ten-year treasury yield has gone up another 100, 200 basis points in kind of three to six months. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I think would cause a dovish pivot, but we're no, we're a long ways away from that outcome. You've got, I love the name of this. It's the four horsemen of uh, market risk, right? So uh, those are different ratios that you kind of look at to measure risk in the market today. Uh, kind of walk us through what are those four indicators? Why why them? Yeah, absolutely. So the four horsemen of market risk are, are intermarket signals. And the reason we sort of uh, look at intermarket signals is because they tend to be leading indicators for not only just the economy, not only the asset markets themselves, but for the broader economy. Typically, what you find is that, you know, the leadership within the equity market, and oh, by the way, this is not me who's discovered this, Stan Druckenmiller, who's arguably the greatest discretionary macro trader of all time, you know, said this, you know, 20 or 30, 40 years ago, uh, back when he was uh, trading money for Soros, you know, he said, hey, look, the best economists in the world are the stock market internals. And I I think that still is very much true today. Um, So anyway, what we look at, what we're trying to do with the full horsemen of market risk is understand sort of the kind of core battles, the core, core style factor battles in the stock market that sort of give you a sense of are things getting better at the margin from a growth and in inflation and policy, policy liquidity is probably the better word to use in this scenario. Um, is it getting better from those perspectives or is it getting worse? So the first um, um, sort of four horsemen of market risk is what we call the VVIX VIX ratio. That's looking at the volatility of volatility as a ratio to the VIX. And the reason we look at it um, in that in that format is because volatility volatility typically is is, is sort of calls on, on VIX, you know, the demand for calls on VIX. And that's kind of the lazy man's, the cheap man's, you know, way to hedge themselves. When the poop's hitting the fan, for lack of a better word, you don't want the, the cheap way to hedge yourself. You actually start reaching for front-month protection, paying up for front-month protection. VIX goes from 20 to 40 to 80 if in a bad scenario. So that's why we, we care about that because the VVIX VIX ratio is typically going up and things are getting better. And it's typically going down, if not crashing, when things are getting worse. So that's a pretty clear signal from an asset market perspective. Uh, the high beta, low beta ratio is the second of the four horsemen of market risk. That's where we look at the relationship between high beta stocks within the S&P 500 relative to low beta stocks in the S&P 500. That's pretty straightforward. You know, Obviously, if things are getting better from an economic perspective and a liquidity perspective, higher beta assets tend to do better because they're high beta, right? Um, but obviously, the reverse is true when things are getting worse. And so, um, you know, we typically we, we anchor on that as one of the four horsemen of market risk as a clear signal. So right now, the VVIX fix ratio is neutral. High beta, low beta ratio is bearish. And, and when we say neutral and bearish, what we're saying is that just from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. Um, and so and then the last of the two, uh, last of the four uh, horsemen of market risk, you have the small cap, mega cap ratio, very similar to the high beta, low beta ratio, and then the value to growth ratio. What we're looking for in terms of generating a signal, either bullishly or bearishly, are twofold. One, in the bullish direction, are three of the four breaking out to bullish from the perspective of that volatility adjusted momentum signal? And are they starting to make higher lows off of a you know off of a market event? And conversely, when we're trying to when, when generate a bearish signal, are three of the four breaking to bearish from the perspective of our VAM signal? And are they making lower lows? Uh, on a trending basis, and right now neither of those um, sort of neither of those is true. But we're certainly watching that because again we understand that we're heading at least not now, but at least two three months from now we'll be kind of right in the th- the thick of it from the beginning of the end as it relates to the um the, the this, this this raging bull market that we've seen. I already I happen to think it already ended, but 
Um, I think a lot of other people will agree with me sort of by the end of the year. It's like you you forget, I mean, just how long this bull market is. It's the longest bull market right in the history of the U.S. stock market, right? I think it's, um, I don't know what I mean, the, 13, so I, 14 years? I, yeah. So, I'm, I mean, I tend to believe that the bull market ended in Q4 of 18 because mm. we did have a 20% correction there, but that's neither. I mean, again, we're, I mean, right. we're, we're picking hairs. I mean, the reality yeah. is we've been in a secular bull market, if only because the Fed's balance sheet and how we calculate net liquidity once you factor in the Treasury General Account balance as well, you know, only because we've been in a bull, secular bull market and net liquidity provision, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, not for whatever, we know the reasons, let's be very clear, but the, the, the you know, the, Fed, the monetary and fiscal authority, particularly here in the U.S. economy and also in the European economy as well, have been very keen to inflate asset markets. It's really, they're really their only policy lever amid this sort of era of secular stagnation. I want to double click on one of the your four horsemen of, of market risk, the uh, value to growth uh, kind of ratio. You know, I heard Grant Williams sum this up in a way that I really liked. Uh, you know, if, if you look at everything through the lens of central banking and interest rates and I guess duration, right? So when, when interest rates go down, obviously the riskier growth stocks, right, that have a higher duration, the value kind of goes up. And if that's broadly been the cycle that's been happening over the course of the last however many years, then you would expect once that cycle reverses that everything kind of plays in reverse, right? And you've, you've seen this in the past when like growth has really outpaced value. And then, you know, in, there was like leading into the dot-com bubble. And then value obviously had a great, uh, you know, five, five year decade long kind of sprint again against growth. Now, similar thing, growth has been trouncing value. And, and like, do you subscribe to the narrative that like some of these more traditional, um, kind of value companies like that beaten down kind of energy stocks, uh, consumer staples, stuff like that. Is that, are you bullish on that particular sector or is this, that's just like one input in your kind of larger framework? On a relative basis, value is certainly working right now. Um, it has been working for the, the past couple quarters, past several quarters um, relative to growth as a function of the rate move. This is not the time, let me be very clear, this is not the time to be loading back up the truck on value. We are long it's, uh, select pockets of energy um, in the U.S. And, and global equity markets right now, but we're, we're certainly we're looking to book gain. We're not looking to add more um, heading into the kind of back half of the year, the outlook that we have, um, because typically what you find is that cyclicals, high beta, in particular high beta cyclicals, anything that has economic leverage, uh, financial leverage on its balance sheet, those things tend to get go down the mo most whenever you get into a, a market decline of any significance. And so um, certainly the, 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 the value trade has worked and it has worked for not only fundamental reasons, but it's also more worked from a rotational standpoint. Um, we, we, would we wouldn't necessarily be inclined to chase everything value. Again, I think when you parse open value, there's financials. I mean, you know, there's energy. There's, you know, there's a lot of the value is not this one monolithic kind of exposure. You know, if you're going to be in value, I certainly think being long energy has a lot more merit to it than going to buy a bank, regional bank, money center bank. I want to switch tax here for a second, Darius, and just get your view on the yen uh, and the Bank of Japan, right? So Bank of Japan effectively this week declared yield curve control, right? You could argue that they've already been, there's been a regime around yield curve control for a while <laughs> the BOJ has been managing. Um, I'd love to get your, like, before we get into exactly even just like the USD, uh, you know, yen trading pair, um, how do investors globally kind of think about the yen? It's, it's funny for me, I don't have a super background in finance, so like, Seeing the yen as like a, a safe haven type asset has always been kind of interesting for me. I never like fully understood it, probably super deeply. Um, so kind of just walk us through like how do investors see the yen uh, and then kind of what's going on, right, uh, in, terms of, in terms of that market. It's mostly because it's truly a function of Japan's large net international investment position. Japan, in fact, has the world's largest 
net international investment position or balance, uh, and 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 it is the world's therefore the world's largest uh, creditor nation. The, the U.S.'s largest creditor nation, if you look at the tick data, um, and they're one point three trillion dollars of of treasuries outstanding that they hold. And so, you know, the reason the yen tends to rise in periods of financial market turbulence is because Japanese investors are looking abroad and getting spooked and they're taking their money and they're taking the ball and going back home. That's as simple as that. Um, with respect to BLJ yield curve control. Um, so the Bank of Japan, let me, let me sort of set the backdrop from an economic standpoint of why the Bank of Japan's monetary policy regime continues to be separate and apart from pretty much every other major central, every other major central bank, and quite frankly, almost every central bank in the world, major or not major. Uh, Japan has struggled for several decades to generate any semblance of, of sustained nominal GDP growth. They've been in and out of deflation for really since the bursting of their, their asset bubble in the late 80s. Um, they've been doing some version of, quant of quantitative easing or on and off for a really long period of time. And ultimately, uh, when Governor Kuroda, who's the current Bank of Japan, uh, Hiroko Kuroda, he's the current um, uh, governor of the Bank of Japan, when he finally came on board in, in late 2012, early 2013, he finally said, enough is enough. I'm just going with massive, unlimited quantitative easing, this and that. And they did that for quite a while. And they realized that like, that wasn't even working. And so what they started to do was actually do yield curve control, but to the downside, they wanted to cap JGB yields uh, from going down to send a signal to the economic participants that, hey, no, things aren't falling off a cliff. You don't need to um, you know, continue to lower prices and continue to pull back on spending and perpetuate deflation. Well, now they're still doing yield curve control, but it's to the upside right now, and it's to cap interest rates. Um, and the reason they want to do that the BOJ has a, a, a cap of 0.25% for the 10-year JGB yield. The reason they want to do that is because, again, Japan has had a terribly tough time generating and sustaining inflation. We just got the March CPI data out uh, overnight um, for, the, 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 for, for Japan, and uh, the, the BOJ's target is on core C, or on headline CPI X fresh food. That number came in at 0.8%, accelerated 20, 30 basis points. Uh, it came in at 0.8% on a year-over-year -year basis. That's 120 basis points below the BOJ's target. And so of all those major central banks in the world, like everyone's struggling with inflation right now that is multiples of the central bank target, you know, particularly here in the U.S., Europe, you know, Europe's got all-time high inflation as well. Japan's like still struggling to catch up. And so that's why they're, they're expanding their balance sheet as, 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 as aggressively as they are trying to cap JGB yields because they want to maintain that easing bias. You've got this great kind of chart, you know, linking, uh, you know, U.S. Treasury yields versus, um, you know, JGBs. Like walk us through like how central bank or uh, the BOJ's monetary policy kind of ripples out right to yields uh, kind of around the rest of the world. Yeah. So it's, it's almost it's, it's like a two phase uh, regime prior to this week. Um, so for a while. Uh, investors in Japan and anyone who's speculating in the JGB market was really sort of betting on the BOJ's unwillingness to maintain their current yield curve control policy. And they were sort of constantly selling JGBs and pushing mm -hmm. those yields up to the uh, upper boundary of that corridor in anticipation of a revision higher, right? They're going to basically force the Bank of Japan to revalue their corridor, or re, you know, revalue JGBs lower, revalue JGB yields higher. That would have had a massive impact on global financial markets, you know, you could have seen treasury yields gap higher, 25 basis points in a day, 30, 40, 50 basis points in a day on that as a function of that, because again, the whole global sovereign debt market is interconnected, it's intertwined. You know, Japan is, a, again, the, world, the world's largest creditor. You know, it's got the world's largest pension funds and mutual funds and insurance companies. They all need bonds and duration on their balance sheet, just like the European ones do, just like the US ones do. And so they're all out there, you know, transacting in global bond markets. And so 
what happens in the JGB market ripples across to the treasury, the boon market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the BOJ coming this past week, capping yields effectively sent a signal to all of those bond markets that, hey, look, if you think about playing a game of Jenga right now, and there's a bear case being built on treasury bonds and on bonds globally, you know, one thing that's kind of taken away one of those pieces of that bear case Jenga game is the sort of lack of revision to this BOJ yield curve control policy. They're going to maintain that easing bias. And so at the margin, you're getting sort of less pressure, on less selling pressure, if you will, on the treasury market, on the boom market. Now, that's not the only thing that matters, obviously. The Fed's regime shift, the policy regime, the inflation dynamics continue to get, they're continue to get worse, not better. Those things are, you know, what's really driving the, the bond market. But certainly BOJ capping, uh, capping JGB yields has, has been a positive factor at the margin. Um, and ultimately, it will be a bigger positive factor once inflation gets under control broadly. But again, we're not at that point in the process yet. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I'd be curious to get your view of this kind of higher level narrative, right? It gets described sometimes a lot of different ways. Like in Luke Roman's parlance, it's, you know, we're seeing the first sovereign debt bubble in 80 years. Uh, you know, the other very popular thing that right now that gets bandied around a lot is we're seeing the end of the 40-year bull market in bonds, whatever it is. Like, what's your perspective on that? Do you see us at an inflection point when it comes to fixed income? Do you think that's overblown as a narrative in general? And like you said, there's this tremendous bid out there, right, for global institutions to own, uh, right, duration. Like, what, what's your kind of view on just... I guess sovereign bonds in general. You just named two fantastic investors I have yeah. a lot of respect for. With all due respect to them and everyone else, uh, you know, there's, there's, when people make calls like that, no one has the staying power to stay in those kinds of trades, right? You know, yeah. The end of the 40-year bond bear market. Well, do you have 40 years of, of, of time and capital to, to put that trade on? No, no. The reality is we're still going to have cyclical impulses to the upside and downside in the economy, to the upside and downside in inflation, to the upside and downside in policy expectations and liquidity provisions. So, you know, this is why, you know, what really matters is these impulses, not like 40 years that way, 40 <laughs> years this way, you know, like, you know, yeah. 35 years old, 40 years was a long time ago. Um, so anyway, the, the, so just answering the question, though, have we seen the end of the, the sort of 40 year bond bear market or bull market? 
Perhaps yes, and the reason I say perhaps yes is because we, we you know, based on our analysis, we built a, a dynamic factor model that takes into account everything that matters uh, in terms of projecting inflation, where you look at globalization, changes in globalization, changes in automation, changes in, you know, sort of the balance sheet, uh, Fed balance sheet, fiscal policy, wages, all those, you know, 16 factors in the model, all these sort of, you know, critical macro variables. And that model is suggesting that, you know, the, the stationary mean of inflation, which is somewhere just shy of about 20 basis points lower than 2%, you know, or shy of the Fed's 2% target, you know, in the past decade, is now somewhere closer to 3%. And so we've, we've that stationary mean has, trend, has, has made lower highs and lower lows for the past, you know, let's call it 30 years, really 20, 25 years or so. That thing is now moving higher. And so if you think about, okay, bond yields have been making lower highs and lower lows for the past, you know, 20, you know really 40 years. Is it, is it likely that bond yields have bottomed and are now going to make higher highs and higher lows from that point in time? According to our analysis, yes, that is, that's a very reasonable uh, uh, proposition. However, it doesn't mean that bonds are going to go straight down for 40 years or, you know, the, you know from, from particularly from these levels. I mean, we're still going to have an inflation cycle that we're in the midst of, you know, trying to find a, a top end. Um, again, I'm not saying it is, has peaked. It certainly doesn't look like it's peaked from a statistical standpoint, um, but certainly it will peak and eventually bond yields will fall. But it's unlikely that they'll fall back to the lows that we saw of March of 2020. They'll make a higher low from there and then they'll make a higher high from wherever high they peak. Uh, you know, it's called two, three years from now. If you look less at sovereign bonds as as an investment and more as like a global savings vehicle, right? Uh, for for in, that's only available institutions. I think that's a pretty interesting way to look at like the like U.S. Treasuries, for instance, or I guess you know other sovereign bonds as well. Um, I'd be curious to hear like what you think about kind of the Bitcoiner argument that right that a lot of the value that's in the bond market today, uh, kind of the monetary premium that's ascribed to that market in general, kind of leaks out of that and either ends in gold or something like Bitcoin or like a more maybe solid, uh, less um, credit based fiat, uh, you know, type asset. Like, how, how do you think about just precious metals, Bitcoin, some of that value leaking from the bond market into some of those other markets? Yeah. So based on everything I just said about uh, the likelihood of the, the sovereign global bond yields and global bond markets, you know, kind of having a bond yields, having put in, you know, kind of a, a secular low and making mm -hmm. higher highs and higher lows from that point forward. I would agree with that sort of leaking dynamic. Now that you have to caution and say, "Hey, look, there's hundreds of trillions of dollars of global sovereign debt outstanding." Yeah, right. You know, there's just the institutions need somewhere. They need a place to put their capital. They can't. They they can't have counterparty risk of that magnitude in terms of putting money in banks. You know, money market funds are you know starved for assets right now, and so you know, at least outside of the Fed, most central banks are unwilling to kind of grow their balance sheet enough to sort of account for all that excess savings. And so guess what? Where does that excess savings go? Well, it goes to capitalize the uh, you know, sovereign, sovereign entities, uh, sovereign nations across the world. Uh, obviously, U.S., Japan, Europe, and China being kind of the four horsemen in that, in that regime. And so you know, we're all, there's always going to be a demand for sovereign debt that is not economic, that is sort of non-economic, like not responding to you know, changes in the economy. You know, there's always going to be that kind of core level of demand. But the reality is I do agree with your premise that, hey, look, that core level of demand is shrinking at the margins and rotating into more attractive investment vehicles. You hmm. know, crypto didn't exist, you know, 15 years ago. So if you were a reserve manager, let's say at the kind of, um, you know, the Norway, uh, you know, sort of um, sovereign wealth funds, one of the world's, I think it is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, mm -hmm. you know, you could, you didn't have an opportunity to buy Bitcoin in the, you know, in, in, you know, 20 or 15 years ago. Now you can. Now Bitcoin's not big enough to make a dent in their portfolio, but maybe over time it will be.
I moved into crypto in 2017. You know, there were a lot of calls for these gigantic sovereign wealth funds, gigantic pension funds to, they were going to buy Bitcoin. And I mean, the timeline was like three to six months, I remember in 2017. In retrospect, that just seems pretty hilarious based on the size of these, of these, uh, funds i mean it's nowhere near possible yeah i mean like the the, the 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 sovereign wealth fund of norway or saudi arabia could buy the all cryptocurrency and it wouldn't make a dent in their portfolio and like, <laughs> exactly. yeah, like, you know what i mean like they're just they're so big you know there's not enough market cap and this is why the adoption story for crypto is so positive right mm-hmm. like there's all these massive behemoths who probably want exposure to the asset class and they're going to continue flowing assets to it at the margins uh, for a very long period of time, because again, you know, you're going to have this persistent underlying bid to get these people into positions that they ultimately want to be much bigger. Yeah, we haven't talked about China at all. Uh, you know, I guess we're both in America here. Us Americans tend to view ourselves as the center of the world. Uh, we are not. Um, so, you know, my, my question to you is: there's obviously kind of this temporary threat of uh, shutdown, right? So, a large amount, a portion of the Chinese populace is in shutdown right now due to our COVID uh, rehashing. But in general, I mean. What are your thoughts on kind of China as a leading indicator, right, for U.S. Uh, economic activity and GDP growth? And are you concerned at all about these these recent shutdowns in uh, Shanghai and other cities? Yeah, so China is can be a leading indicator, particularly when you're seeing an aggressive amount of easing um, you know, out of Beijing, whether it be through monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus. It tends to be a combination of both in China because obviously it's a state uh, command economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not seeing that right now. We are observing in our, in our data an inflection, a positive inflection in the Chinese credit cycle, which tends to lead the Chinese GDP cycle by, you know, roughly around two quarters. And so that positive inflection we've observed, you know, kind of into last year, beginning of this year, implies that Chinese and, you know, the Chinese economy is coming, you know, cyclically improving and should be, you know, trending higher by the end of the year, which is very, is very counter to pretty much every other major economy in the world. Um, so that will have, you know, positive impact, likely to have positive impact for Chinese asset markets. But the reason I say Chinese asset markets and not asset markets broadly is because historically, in order for China to sort of create broad-based reflation, not just economically, i.e. positive growth impulse, positive inflation impulse for the whole global economy, but also reflation in asset markets, i.e. asset markets are pricing in that those positive impulses, you typically need to see a substantially higher level of easing out of both monetary and fiscal authorities in China. PBOC has been very reluctant and unwilling to change its policy setting. Uh, they delivered another uh, reserve requirement ratio cut last week. This is only their third in this entire easing cycle going back to early part of last year. Um, they continue to maintain very tight uh, rates. You can think about their medium term lending and their open market operations. And so, and their balance sheet obviously maintain you know, and as a function of that, you know, continues to be fairly static. And so the reason I bring all that up is that, hey, look, China wants to improve the Chinese economy and they're doing just enough from a rhetorical standpoint in terms of forward guidance and enough from a liquidity standpoint to kind of make sure they've taken off the left tail um, of the kind of growth distribution. But they're certainly not doing anything that looks like they want to actually create a stimulus. And that actually makes sense if you think about where China is in its demographic cycle, where China is in its leverage cycle, you know, in terms of the analysis that we look at, um, in terms of the deviation and, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, debt service ratios, deviation and, and credit to GDP ratios, you know, particularly for the private non-financial sector, China's in not a great spot um, to be easing. I mean, if you're easing at this point, all you're, you're, all you're really going to do is create an asset bubble and cause a deeper uh, uh, slowdown on the other side of that. So I think they're aware of those kind of dynamics. I think they're also aware of their, their decline in their demographics. You know, it's just you, they're not going to grow the same pace that they used to grow. So this is why you've seen a structurally lower revision to the Chinese growth uh, uh, Chinese um, growth forecast. So kind of the key takeaway on China is that, hey, look, 
China should do well on a relative basis, kind of as we get you know deeper into this year, where things are getting worse at the margins for most developed markets, most emerging markets, you know, vis-a-vis dollar strength and and tightening global liquidity. Whereas China and anything that's very, very closely tied to China, maybe ex-Russia, is likely to do a little bit better. So that's kind of our thoughts on that. I've said this a bunch of times on this podcast, but it's I, I think it's really interesting where there are issues of divergence, uh, particularly between smart groups of people. Right? Um, and the three examples I, I like to say is like Tesla. You got really smart people on both sides of that argument. You've got right. crypto, really smart people on both sides of that argument, and China. And depending on who you ask about China, it's there's a Thucydides trap, you know, rising and falling empires. China's playing Go. We're playing uh, you know, checkers or whatever, uh, and we're about to get rocked. Uh, and then other people like it's all, it's a, it's a house of cards, right? Their demographics are imploding. All of it's fake. The numbers aren't real. It's just very interesting uh, to see such a strong divergence of really and smart guess people. What? They're all right to some degree, right? They're all mm. right in that, in whatever area of focus there are. But you have to remember China is the world's second largest economy, likely on its way to becoming the world's largest economy by the end of this, this, this decade. You know, like, Anything you say about Illinois doesn't necessarily hold true in Tennessee or California, right? Mm. And so you have to, you start, we start, we got to stop thinking about China like it's just this one thing where it's all good or it's all bad. No, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, you know, particularly if you look at it from a policy standpoint. But ultimately, China's going to go where it's going to go. And one thing we haven't talked about, I think it's very important to discuss, is from a geopolitical standpoint, which is impossible to model, and I'll be the first one to tell you to don't listen to anyone who's giving you certainty with respect to analyzing geopolitical risk. But I'm going to give you a range of probable outcomes that I think everyone should pay attention to. China, in this past week, put out several statements reaffirming their strategic ties to Russia. This is months after Russia's failed invasion of Ukraine, or failed thus far, failed invasion of Ukraine, in which the West has sort of banded together to tighten the screws on Russia from a sanctions, international sanctions perspective. Even after all that, President Xi Jinping, the Chinese vice, uh, vice, uh, vice premier, are all out saying, hey, no, look, China's our strategic ally. We are not China. Russia's our strategic ally. We're, we're, you know, we're going to have their back. That, to me, signals something. And the reason I say that is that, hey, look, China's been observing and watching for the past two months. Hey, what do the sanctions look like? How much are they biting? What are the pain points for the West in terms of what they're unwilling to sanction, i.e. crude oil, natural gas, uh, for the most part? You know, kind of like how aggressive is the West being from a military response perspective? Can I tiptoe towards Poland? You know, like, you know, all those. So the China's been taking notes. And the reason I say they've been taking notes is because guess what? We know at some point they're take they're going to invade Taiwan. Now, it's part of their 20, you know, kind of, you know, China's uh, 2050 initiative where they basically want to be dominating the world by the year 2050. And this is, goes back to your point on them playing Go or playing checkers. They are going to invade Taiwan between April 22nd, 2022 and December 31st, 2050. The reason I say it's relevant today is because China now has something live on the tape to say, hey, look, this is, is, they now can see, hey, this, the West is, the the response looks tough, but it actually isn't tough. And so maybe heading into Xi's coronation event at the end of the year, he's effectively going to get, you know, kind of elevated to the status of Chairman Mao. Um, you know, towards the end of the year, which would be, you know, he's cemented, he's already cemented his third term as president for life, but he's, you know, he's going to get elevated in terms of Chinese folklore from that perspective. What grander thing could he do than to sort of, uh, you know, initiate the sort of reignition, the re, the, the kind of remuneration of the, the kind of China-Taiwan story? I'm not saying it has to happen. I'm just saying there's a political catalyst towards the end of the year where it, it could happen. And oh, by the way, they've been taking notes and saying, hey, look, 
the West isn't as tough as we thought they were. Yeah. They've learned, they've actually learned that this year as opposed to speculating. Maybe the way that translates to markets is, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about like a multipolar world, which makes a lot of sense to me, right? Global supply chains, they shift from an insane focus. And I used to be a, you know, consultant, we do this and insane focus on efficiency and cost to uh, a focus on resiliency. Um, and, uh, you know, considering geopolitical risk in terms of where you put your manufacturing base and your operating footprint. So, I, and that, that translates to inflation. I think yeah. um, it's it's exactly, and this is the, and this is the problem. Well, it's it's also translates to growth, technically speaking. It's just that you're more likely to get the inflation first and the right. growth after, right? There's right. a process to it, right? You you have to first figure out where all the pain points. You find, I mean, obviously we're finding that out now with eight and a half percent CPI, but yeah. the reality is there are going to be more pain points. You know, as the economy continues to shift and evolve and ultimately settle at whatever we're going to settle at from a hybrid work from home and commuting perspective, you know, where I'm not sure that we figure that balance out yet broadly, but wherever we settle at, it will be different than where it was in 2019. Right. And yeah. so that means, you know, the supply chains that have been disrupted will have to eventually get to a place where they're ultimately, you know, servicing, you know, the demand for the goods and services effectively. And so that process is ongoing and it's likely to continue ongoing and right. And what's the best way to reallocate resources in any economy? A recession. That's yeah. what a recession is. Mm -hmm. It's a destruction of capital to lower prices so that those with the capital can effectively reallocate resources, both from a uh, financing, but also from a labor standpoint, in order to you know, chase the areas of, of highest return. That's mm -hmm. exactly what a recession is. And so you know, I don't think Jay Powell wants this outcome, but I don't think they'd be too terribly sort of annoyed by the outcome, particularly given the level of inflation, how much further it is away from their target. Because again, at the end of the day, this is an economy from a leverage standpoint. Again, all the things I said about Chinese leverage, China's leverage cycle was a little bit different than ours. We don't have the same kind of leverage cycle dynamics that would imply any recession we go into is going to be very severe. You know, the, any recession we go into next year is very likely to be something that looks like the 2001 recession. Mm. That's the tiniest recession in U.S. terms in terms of the peak to trough decline in, in GDP. I think it's only like 70 basis points. Like you couldn't even feel the recession if you were alive in 2001. I was in sixth or seventh grade. Oh, no, I was, you know, yeah, I was, no, I was, in, who knows? I was, in, yeah, sorry. No, I was in eighth grade in 2001, rather. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, no, like you, you didn't even know there was a recession. Like, so that's mm. my point. It's like, you know, the market had a really tough time then, but the economy really didn't. So you could have something like that. I think if we did get into a recession next year, it'll look something like that. But yeah. ultimately the process of getting to there is what's scary for asset markets. That's where you have, you know, you're kind of feeling around in the dark and that's what causes volatility. It does feel like at the current, uh, current juncture, a lot of uncertainty in the market, I would say in general. Um, you know, I think uh, just the, the one that I paid the most attention to obviously is crypto and uh, it's steady, you know, for the time being. But it, I think there's a lot of, I mean, there is always multiple dynamics. Right? We had an enormous amount of venture money come in that are kind of supporting um, labor conditions, I guess I'd characterize it in crypto, but asset prices, they feel like they don't really know what they want to do if they want to puke lower, or just tread water or whatever. But um, here's a quick question uh, before we go. When that venture money comes in, and I'm, I myself, and you know, I think I know a lot, I think I can forget a lot of things about macro, but I'm still kind of learning in, on the crypto side, um, which I appreciate, you know, services like yours and, yeah. and just friends of you, you know, friends, people like you just kind yeah. of catch me up the curve. When that venture money comes in, and it's obviously designed to help people build out new protocols, et cetera, et cetera, does that money sort of kind of like it spill out of the crypto ecosystem 
and like kind of like back into the traditional finance ecosystem? Or do you think it has a kind of a much more sort of stickiness factor to it? Like you get venture money, you invest those people you hire, they all speculate in crypto. It's kind of just like, is it, is it very homogenous? And it's in crypto. I'd be, I'd be pretty surprised if it, if it rebounded very much at all. Yeah. I mean, most of that goes into, I mean, one difference, there are two differences between at least the cycles that I've been operating 2017, 2018 and the current one. One is just the magnitude and two is where that VC money is allowed to be allocated. So back in 2017, 2018, uh, most funds were not allowed to hold liquid tokens. Liquid tokens, because that was the ICO days, to, I, tokens were dirty word, right? And maybe if you were lucky, you got like, you talked to your LPs and you could put like 20% of the fund into something like Bitcoin. But mm -hmm. now that's changed. Tokens are very sexy because they're undervalued relative to equity. Like in the same way that... Um, private market and public market valuations don't move perfectly in lock, lockstep. They get disjointed from, from one another and it can take years to, to relocate. There's a mm -hmm. huge discrepancy right now in terms of the equity of like crypto companies, like not to call out any, but like, like a Coinbase or like a Fireblock or something like that, the equity and actual companies building versus mm -hmm. the price of tokens. And the reason mm -hmm. that is, is because you saw like the Tiger Globals of the world, the Kotus, the SoftBank, they're like, hey, we want exposure to this asset class. They couldn't buy the tokens. So what they did was they came in and led these monster freaking rounds and they drove up the valuation of that part of the balance sheet. So wow. the, the most direct... Um, Frankly, this is new. I mean, the, I, I don't have these numbers off the top of my head, but I think in Q4 uh, of last year's like $30 billion came into this space already. We've got $10 billion, um, you know, or maybe last quarter's $30 billion, this quarter's $10 billion so far. It's like nuts numbers. Um, yeah. So the, the way that just translates is into uh, companies' growth targets. And my, my one concern for the space would be, okay, these companies raised all this money. They have these super aggressive growth targets that were based probably on a market that is not here at the current time. They've got to hire all these employees. Um, and that demand might either not exist or it might get pushed out two years further into the future than they all think. You, sir, just explained mechanically how you have earnings recessions. It's not the fact that growth slows fast enough to cause the earnings recession. It's that revenue growth or sort of uh, operating expense growth are on different timelines. You yeah. can have a big jump in revenue, capital chase that, and ultimately you build out your operating base and your fixed costs to a degree that supports, you know, kind of chasing that dragon. But once that revenue growth slows, you're left with a much higher fixed cost operating base and your margins compress and you have an earnings recession. And that, in our opinion, is something we could very easily see happen in the S&P in the broader economy. S&P 500 operating margins at 16% right now. The prior peaks going back as far as you can get the data... The prior peak was 14%. We're 200 basis points in operating margin terms higher than the prior peak. We could have a earnings recession just to get back to the prior peak. Obviously, we're not going to stop at the peak if we go into an actual recession. So I just want to put that thought, thought, out, that thought out there because, again, this is a boom, an inflationary boom economy that's transitioning over the next sort of 6 to 9 to 12 months to something that looks much more like the economies that we were used to in this GFC era and potentially be uh, something that's outright recessionary by the middle of next year. 100%. I, uh, yeah, and, and in crypto, it's like the, the boom busts are so ridiculously pronounced, it just makes business planning really hard. Uh, for those of you, you know, who are listening and might not be super familiar with how this works, like people always call, I, my beef is that people call it forecasting. It's not forecasting, it's target setting. You go yeah. and you say, here's how much revenue I'd like to earn and I think is realistic next 12 months, three months, five years, whatever. Totally. You start with that target and then you build back your 
cost base, right? And some of that is like very fixed cost base and then some of it's variable in the form of personnel or whatever. And mm -hmm. that's like, to your point, I, I haven't heard it summed up like that, but you're right, there's a lag, there's a lag dynamic, right? When you think demand exists, so you start building towards that, then by the time you finally have your cost basis, the demand might not actually be there. And um, there are some examples, not naming any, there are, there are a couple examples in, in the 2017, 2018 period of companies that got that wildly wrong um, in crypto because the swings company, are like- There's a big company this week, Netflix, oh <laughs> got that God, wildly dude. wrong. Oh my God. All right, I, it's funny. I just recorded with Mark today, our, our roundup. So the analysis, we did a whole like 20 minute. Dude, I have a personal connection to that stock because I, that was the first stock I ever bought in my investing oh, wow. experience. Yeah, uh, I bought it back in 2016. I was like, I, you know, sophisticated analysis. I love Netflix. I'm going to buy this stock. Uh, but I tracked it over and like they, they, they did a couple of things really well. First of all, they, they tell investor relations in a really good way, right? So it was never about EPS, never about revenue. It was about subscriber growth. That's, that's the only, and it was about international subscriber growth, not domestic. Totally. And uh, their stock ripped on two different things. When they would, they'd have these huge beat of, of subscribers, the stock would rip, or they would jack prices up without telling anyone. And then the stock would jump like 15% because no one would cancel their subscription. And um, like six months ago, they, they jacked their prices and the stock didn't move. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I sold all my stock. Uh, and But I rolled it into Roblox. So I, it's, it's stupid. But uh, <laughs> and that's a phenomenal sell. And this, yeah. this is, that's what separates the good investors from the great investors. The good investors, it's not that they are smarter or, you know, have some inherent ability to do, you know, risk management better. It's that they're paying attention all the time. Mm -hmm. That was a massive signal that mm -hmm. you you didn't miss because you were yeah. paying attention. Thanks, man. It, I, I have to admit, like watching Netflix fall that much was startling because, you, you know, you watch Peloton fall, you watch Arc fall, you watch, uh, you know, like who cares, you know, who yeah. cares. Right. Yeah. Like nobody yeah. really believed in those valuations anyway. Netflix totally. always had a high valuation, but I mean, it. I mean, look at the company. stock. Yeah, big company. Um, yeah. Solid business there. What, what did you think about that, that precipitous? So, so I don't want to read too much into it because I think, I think the easy thing to do from a macro analysis perspective, someone who doesn't cover the stock, is to say, hey, yeah, look, it's coming to the broader market. That's the lazy man's thing. It's, it's not necessarily uh, coming. It, I think it could come to the broader market, but for different reasons than what Netflix described. The reason I think Netflix is a microcosm, a potential microcosm for the market is typically is when, whenever you're coming off of a bull market, or not a bull market, a bubble market, which is very clearly what we were in, you typically have whatever companies are in the industry that is generally favored the most by the preceding you know, kind of bubble, there's always that kind of one big company that comes out and it's the beginning of the end for the broader market. You go back to the housing bubble in 2007, Bear Stearns with Kaput um, had to get acquired. In the, in the prior tech bubble uh, in 2000, uh, Qualcomm you know, went out, you know, puked guidance, and it was the, kind of the end of the, the whole tech bubble. And so I'm not saying Netflix was it, and technically speaking, it technically wasn't because Facebook blew up last quarter, but you're already starting to see one by one all these sort of mega cap fang names coming out and puking. And, you know, I'm guessing like Apple, the, you know, the Amazon, the, those, the better companies will be the last men, last, women, last people left standing rather eventually, but they'll come... They'll come get everyone if it's truly uh, something that looks like we're heading to a, a significantly below trend growth state, something that's potentially on its way to recession. The financial market valuations right now are just very unsupportive. And one, I'll leave you with one stat. Right now, the S&P 500's earnings yield, if you take instead of the PE ratio, it's the earnings divided by the price, and then you subtract CPI. So you know the real earnings yield of the S&P 500, so how much are you really getting uh, as an investor in the broad equity market? 
it's as negative as it's ever been. And it's only been negative six times since going back to as far as we can get the data, going back to the early 1960s. The median drawdown from those inversions, from those negative readings is minus 41% for the stock market. And this is as negative as it's ever been. So that should scare people. I'm not trying to scare people. I'm trying to put it in everyone's head that, hey, look, we had the best of times from the fall of 2020 to now, um, and, you know, or from fall to, not now, fall 2020 to let's call it middle of 2021. We're kind of in the transition phase, you know, 2020, middle, second half of 2021 to the first half of 2022 is the transition phase. And then second half of 2022 in our, at least according to our models through the first half of 2023 should be the worst of times. Um, and so just be aware of that as an investor and maybe just take down your risk and be away and have some patience uh, if you want to sort of allocate capital to some of these longer term themes. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Darius. Um, I know we got a wrap here and we're running short on time. If folks want to find out more about you, and by the way, guys, highly recommend uh, you subscribe to Darius, where you heard from him today, but uh, really, really great work that you're putting out at 42 Macro. Tell the audience, if they're not familiar, a little bit about what you do at 42 Macro. How can they find out more about your work, subscribe to your work, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So like, I appreciate the plug. I mean, you know, not everyone, it, our work's not for everybody. I mean, you need to be a serious investor to, to consume our work. And I don't mean necessarily a professional investor. We have plenty of retail subscribers as well. But um, you need to. It, it, our work is probably going to go over your head uh, if you're just kind of winging around a few cryptos. Um, but if you have, you know, at least a few thousand bucks to, ready to invest and, and don't want to lose it, um, I definitely think our services are, are valuable for for, the, for that kind of investor. But so we're at 42macro.com. We put out um, a daily research note, a weekly um, portfolio a, a reallocation uh, pr a, a sort of presentation, and then we put out a monthly deep dive slide deck. Um, that kind of talks to and and gives investors the, the kind of color and all the models associated with everything that we talked about today. So uh, come check us out, 42macro.com. I'm at Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter as well, 42macro detail. Mike, appreciate this, man. This is an awesome talk. Yeah, Darius, it really was. We'll have to get you back on soon. Always. Cheers, my friend. All Cheers. right. Bye.